Thanks for listening to the Treach Podcast. My name is Alyssa Robinson, and today my guest is Jennifer Kilpatrick. She refers to herself as a recovering attorney who practiced law for 20 years before she went to seminary at Perkins. She'll graduate from seminary on May 14th and is scheduled to be commissioned as a provisional elder in the North Texas Conference in June. She is a single mom to an amazing 14-year-old son named Jack. She has experienced anxiety and depression and regularly sees a wonderful therapist. Jennifer participated in our virtual roundtable on depression, which you can watch at tmumc.org wellness. So Jennifer, you participated in our virtual roundtable, and you gave us a little bit of your story around uh, how you discovered that you were dealing with anxiety through an experience with an airplane. Can you just give us, for those who didn't have the chance to tune in, um, an overview of how you discovered that uh, depression and anxiety were present in your life? Sure. I was a young lawyer and I had started my law practice when I was, you know, when I grew up, I went straight from high school, straight to college, straight to law school, and then immediately took my first full-time job as a practicing lawyer. And I was a litigator, and um, I've done that for the past 22 years. So this was years ago when I started in my practice, in, and uh, like I said, I... I've been a litigator and so that involves a lot of travel and I was actually supposed to go to a conference which is you know um, arguably more fun than flying out somewhere to go try a case which is often what I would do but um, at any rate I was supposed to go fly to uh, to Philadelphia for a conference and I just couldn't get on the airplane I mean I was just absolutely paralyzed with fear because I had a crippling fear of flying and I thought that it was manageable enough that I could probably manage a two-hour flight from New Orleans to Philadelphia and turns out that was not the case and so I ended up canceling that but I realized pretty quickly that before I became a lawyer that having a fear of flying just meant that that would alter my vacation schedule and when I became a lawyer it was a lot more significant than that and that it had real repercussions for my professional life and so I decided to try to get some professional help for that because um, clearly all I had was a fear of flying problem right I mean that was the only real problem it was the planes problem not mine obviously and if we could just work on that that'd be great and so um, I went to a counselor and the counselor was lovely, but I really needed more than what just a regular counselor could offer. And so she gave me a referral to a psychiatrist. And so I went to a psychiatrist and that began really an intensive, like a four year journey of psychotherapy um, where he was this psychiatrist was the one who had who diagnosed me with depression and anxiety which are two sides of the same coin as well as um, OCD which is obsessive compulsive disorder and um, and I started going to regular psychotherapy with him so that was when I first really learned about what was going on yeah yeah so 
I, I feel like I've gotten to hear a lot about your um, anxiety through the round table and I kind of got a good understanding of how your anxiety manifests itself, but I didn't really hear you talk a lot about your experience with depression and how that might be different for you than some of the other people on the panel you were speaking to. That's a good question. And truthfully, I think that I didn't talk as much about depression, first of all, because we didn't have a lot of time. We had a limited amount of time with, you know, several of us to get to, but right. also because I tend to have more anxious symptoms these days rather than depressive symptoms, which is perfectly fine with me. Um, in some ways, for me, symptoms of anxiety are a bit easier to manage than symptoms of depression can be. Um, that's just a personal thing for me. I don't know that that's necessarily true for everyone. Um, as they say, your mileage may vary, but that's just my own personal lived experience. Um, and I have had significant periods of time in my life starting when I was young, starting when I was a child where I was significantly depressed, where I really was very depressed and I am not now and I have not had one of those episodes in quite a while. I mean, it's been, gosh, it's been several years, thankfully. Um, I say thankfully because it really takes a toll on your quality of life. But I think that that was probably why I didn't bring it up as much, primarily because it's not at the top of my mind because I don't deal with it as much day to day these days. Um, but it definitely is something I have experienced in the past. And what's interesting is when I was first diagnosed with depression, I really didn't even know what it was. Um, I had heard the term, but it, it's hard to diagnose in yourself. It's much easier to hear someone else's story or to interact with people or talk to them. And it's very clear when you're looking at them saying, oh, they're obviously depressed. But when we see ourselves, we don't always see those same things. We, you know, even if we exhibit the exact same symptoms, it just doesn't always occur to us that that's what's going on, which is why it can be very helpful to see someone, to go see a therapist or someone who can give us that kind of perspective that we don't have on ourselves. And so um, when I was diagnosed, I did not know that that was going on. I was just very frustrated because I had a lot of symptoms that were frustrating to me that I did not fully understand. For me, depression can look like struggling to get out of bed in the morning. I always do get out of bed, but maybe, you know, lingering in bed longer than I normally would, um, having, you know, more difficulty getting going in the morning. And I, for me, that's a symptom because I am typically a morning person. I do really well in the mornings. I am not a nighttime person. Um, and I schedule my days accordingly with all of the big heavy lifting, you know, going on first thing in the morning when I am at my best. So um, if I'm struggling in the mornings, that's usually a sign. If my physical environment seems to get more disorderly, like if my house gets messy, if my office workspace starts to get really messy, you know, messy spaces are not a problem across the board. That's very specific. You have to figure out what your baseline is and see what the, you know, changes in norms are for you. What's what your, find out what your normative behavior is and then see how your 
you know, each day is different from your normative behavior. For me, I like to keep neat and tidy spaces around me. And so when they're not, that is a sign that there's something going on with me. It might be depression. It might be something else. It's probably depression, though. Um, things like that. I tend to be as an Enneagram 3, which we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about. Oh, I was immediately going to bring that up because I was like, the way you experience depression sounds very much like an Enneagram 3. <laughs> I mean, I am as a, as a, I mean, I bring some big three energy. I'm not going to lie. And I'm very self-aware and I know I am definitely a three and I am the focused achiever who makes a to-do list every day and just crushes the to-do list and just knocks through everything I need to get done. And I like doing that. It makes me happy. I am the type of person who, if I do something that is not on my to-do list, I will add it to my to-do list after I did it so I can check the box and know that I did it <laughs> because it makes me so happy when I can do that and it gives me a lot of satisfaction. If I am not doing those things, if I'm struggling to... Um, to be motivated, if I'm struggling to get my work done, if I'm lagging in my responses, either to emails or just to work um, in general, that tends to be a sign that something more is going on. Not because of that in and of itself is necessarily a good or a bad thing, just because it's different for me. And so that kind of behavior is uncharacteristic of me when I'm in a healthy place. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because I think that those of us who don't uh, struggle with depression, me being one of them, I've never really had a depressive episode. We have these stereotypes in our head of what it looks like to be depressed. And so we're like, okay, if someone literally can't get out of bed in the morning, they, you know, are canceling all of their plans. They're wanting, they're not showering for days. They're wanting to stay in darkness. Like we just think of almost like this troll-like existence uh, equals depression, and it doesn't for everybody. And someone might be in interaction with you on a daily basis, and you're going through a depressive episode, and they don't even realize it. Because as an Enneagram on the uh, as an Enneagram 3, you're still in a depressive episode, accomplishing way more than many other people who they can't can't even get to where you are when you're going through a depressive episode. No, that's exactly right. And I do think that makes it in in some ways that does make it even harder for other people to understand because by all appearances, especially if you are a high functioning three um, on the Enneagram, you really are like putting out an impressive amount of output in terms of work product and all of that. And it's very good. I mean, that's the crazy part is when I was a lawyer on a really bad depressed day, I could still respond to client emails very well, have a defense counsel strategy call and write an appellate brief. And all of them were good quality, good work that no one had any problem with. There was no change in the quality of my work product. There was no change in my billable hours or in things like that. And so 
if someone were to come up to you and say, how are you? I want an honest answer. And I could say, oh my gosh, I'm terrible. I'm just having such a hard time. They would say, are you sure? Because it doesn't look that way on the outside. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just so you can get to know me a little bit better too. A lot of our listeners already know I'm an eight on the Enneagram. And so I have the same effect of if I'm going through something and I actually share it with someone, they're like, I would have never guessed. And I'm like, good. That's how I want it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Threes and eights are not really known for their vulnerability. And so, um, so I agree that that's, you know, that's really not something that I don't want people to think that I'm on the struggle bus, particularly mm -hmm. as a three, as the achiever on the Enneagram, I want people to think, to see me as successful and to see me as competent and as an achiever. I don't want them to think that I'm struggling or having a hard time or heaven forfend that I might be human, right? That, that would be the end of the world if people saw me that way. So having to rethink that is an interesting process. Yeah. So, so one of the things that you mentioned in the virtual roundtable is that um, one of the symptoms for you was that you started to see challenges in work, which you've already talked about a little bit, but also challenges in relationships. Can you tell me a little bit more about um, where you saw relationships start to fall apart a little bit as a result of going through this process of figuring out, you know, what's happening with me right now? Um, just navigating um, relationships is always interesting. And particularly so when um, there's an overlay of anxiety or depression because I got married when I was a young lawyer. I had the, I made the amazing decision to graduate from law school, immediately begin studying for the bar exam, take the bar exam, and then immediately get married. And, and it was all fine, and it all worked, and I passed the bar on the first try, and I graduated from school with no problems, and you know, I mean, all of that, I mean, it all worked. Um, but at the same time, it was, it was not without its sacrifices and not without its difficulties because all, you know, each of those individual things is a lot. It involves a lot of work and a lot of thought and time and commitment to do all of those things well and the way that you want to. Doing them all at the same time is next level. I mean, it's really, it's really a lot. And, um, you know, and my then husband was in the army. And so he was getting, you know, really involved in that and um, was very busy with that. And so we just, you know, he was gone a lot. I was studying a lot. And so we just didn't have a lot of time to spend together. We were not spending um, all of our days together because we were both running in different directions. And he's the ultimate extrovert. And strangely enough, I don't consider myself to be an extrovert. I consider myself to be a high functioning introvert. And so we're just, we were just different people. And so we were already starting out as different people. And he had never dealt with anxiety or depression or anything like that, nor did he have any family members who had dealt with anything like that. And so it was very new for him um, to be married to someone who 
was not only navigating that, but didn't even know what they were navigating, right? You know, that I was dealing with that, but didn't even know what it was. And I started seeing my therapist while I was married and I took an antidepressant while I was married, which was very much needed and which I really um, found to be very helpful. Um, it was one of a few different ones that I tried over the years. And um, and when you need them, you need them and they really do help. But if you need them, it's often because you're really struggling. And, um, and it was really hard because you know, I mean, he was my husband. He really wanted to help me. He wanted to fix things, right? You know, when he saw me struggling, he wanted me not, not to struggle. He wanted to be happy. He wanted, you know, me to be happy all the time. And that's just not really, it's not really a realistic goal for anyone, particularly someone going through a depressive episode. Um, I mean, most people just aren't equipped to help someone through that, especially if they don't really know or understand what they're going through. So that was, um, that was definitely a struggle just going through, you know, a new marriage, being young, starting new careers and, um, dealing with depression. That was hard. It was hard with family relationships as well. My mother has passed away. She passed away a few years ago. Um, from end-stage renal disease, but she also had significant mental health challenges throughout her life that were largely undiagnosed and untreated during most of her life, and she really didn't seek treatment until much later, unfortunately, because she would have had a much better quality of life had she actually sought treatment much earlier, but she definitely had a lot of depression throughout her life, and growing up with a depressed parent while you're going through depression is, um, it's a lot, you know, I mean, that puts very real strains on relationships. And so particularly when you're a kid and you don't really understand it and you don't understand what's going on, it's challenging. Well, and I wonder, you know, with, uh, I don't know what generation your mom fell into, but when I had had conversations with my grandparents and my grandmother who went through some mental health issues, she said, I wish I could have sought out a therapist or a counselor. But at the time, if I had done that, I would have been committed. I think my understanding of her is not so much that she wanted to seek out mental health when she was growing up, but couldn't. I think that the issue was she didn't know what was going on either. She had four brothers and sisters growing up in West Texas with a dad who was gone a lot and, um, and she just didn't really know how to deal with some of the volatility and reactivity in the relationships. And her thought was, if I can just get out of here, it's going to get better. If I can just grow up, go to college and leave home, I can chart my own course and things will be better. And I think that's what a lot of people think, not fully realizing the long-term effects that our childhoods have on us and that all, you know, our own wiring, our own neural um, neural pathways and our own, you know, brain structure, the, the kind of effect that that has. So she probably just didn't even know, just thinking, oh, it'll be fine, I'll just do that. The problem was I think that that kind of set in, um, in motion a series of events where she spent most of her life trying to chase 
happy emotions. Like, so she just wanted to be happy all the time, you know, and going to the therapist is not going to immediately make you happy. <laughs> it's going to make you really sad at first because you've got to work through difficult stuff. So I think she was resistant to that. But, um, you know, but ultimately she finally did. I mean, like I said, she finally did go to the therapist and I'm grateful for that because it was helpful. Well, and, and Pastor Doug has talked a lot about happiness chasing in the past, and that, that's something that he struggles with, too. And so I wonder if that is a trait that is taken on by people who have experienced anxiety and depression. If I could only get to X, if I could only do this, if my life could only change in this way, then all of this will go away. Is that something that you personally dealt with when you were figuring out this whole process? Uh -huh. It was. I think that that I think that's kind of a human reaction in a lot of ways, and it is something that I worked through um, over the years because it is very comforting to think that. I have things going on with me that are overwhelming that I don't know what to do with. And it is a comforting thought to think, well, if I can just set this short-term achievable goal for myself, that's going to solve all my problems and I'll be happy. That's obviously not realistic, but I can see why, I mean, it makes sense why that would be a tempting goal or framework or way to think of that. It is something that I have um, dealt with over the years where I thought, well, my law practice is difficult. Like when I was a young associate, I thought my law practice is stressful and difficult, but if I can just make partner, then you know, once I reach that goal, things will get better and I can start moving some of this work to other associates and you know, things will change. Things did change, but they don't get less stressful. They get more. It's just that the stress changes. And it was similar in terms of growing up and working with relationships. Well, if I can just get married, you know, and then I'm in a stable marriage and relationship, I'll have this loving, supportive husband and things will be better. Yes, I had a loving and supportive husband and no, things were not necessarily better because then I had a loving, supportive husband who didn't understand me and did not know what was going on and I didn't fully understand myself. And so I was not in a great position to explain to him what was going on. I tried, but I really struggled to do that. Again, as an Enneagram 3, I didn't understand myself. And so I didn't know who I was. I was busy trying to please everyone else. So I definitely identify with this idea of constantly moving the goalpost throughout your life and thinking, if I can just get to the, this next thing, or if I can just take that two-week vacation, or if I can just do whatever it is, or you know, get this next promotion, that that's gonna solve the problem when it clearly doesn't. Well, and one of the things that you said is, you know, what you really need is to seek out therapy and counseling, and that's not gonna bring you happiness. It's going to bring you a lot of pain. <laughs> can and Which I have also experienced in my own therapy sessions. Therapy is not for the faint of heart. Um, can you walk me through a little bit of what that experience was like? You said it took you, you know, four years of working through this, and um, obviously you're still in weekly therapeutic sessions, uh, but in the beginning, when you were just getting started, what was that pain like? But I also want that hope at the end of the tunnel of what made it worth it. Going through therapy at the beginning 
was overwhelming and for me kind of confusing because again I just had an aircraft problem I did not have you know that's what I convinced myself nothing was wrong with me because thinking that something was wrong with me was both stigmatizing and overwhelming and scary thinking what if there are things terribly wrong with me that are not fixable you know what if I'm just doomed for the rest of my life the good news is that I am not just doomed and I think one of the most comforting and uplifting things about therapy, even on the hardest days, was that I can pretty much guarantee that no matter what is going on with you, no matter how disordered you think you are, or how quote-unquote crazy you think you are, if you go to a good licensed mental health professional and you lay out your deepest, darkest secrets, they're going to look at you and just sort of nod and write it down and go, okay, that's it. You know, I mean, because they have heard things that are much worse than anything than you could that you could potentially tell them and what i found you're gonna have if you've if you've shocked your therapist maybe it's time to find a new therapist <laughs> completely completely i mean because they are unfazed absolutely especially the longer that they do these things you know the more people they see the more they hear the same stories over and over and what i found was that what i was going through was very common and it was very typical of all sorts of people. Yes, of lawyers, but also pastors go through it, doctors, I mean, everyone, you know, bus drivers, it doesn't really matter what you do or who you are. People are going to people and they're going to do what they're gonna do. And so I found out through therapy that what I was going through was actually very common, that I did not need to be alarmed, that I did not need to be scared, but I did need to do a lot of work in order to get to a healthier place. And happiness was not going to happen overnight, nor was healthiness. And that was very overwhelming and difficult. And there were times when I wanted to give up because I kept going to therapy sessions and my therapist was not purely Freudian because in true Freudian therapy, you walk in, you either sit or lie down on the couch and the therapist says nothing for 50 minutes, literally nothing to you, does not speak. And so my therapist did not do that, thankfully, or else I would not have continued. But he would ask occasional questions and try to get me to do most of the talking with the idea being that you will eventually talk your way through it. And he would occasionally ask a few, you know, a few guiding questions to kind of move things along. Um, and I did eventually work my way through a lot of things, including frustration with my therapist and anger with my therapist, because you go through the whole transference thing where you work through all of these emotions, all these unresolved feelings and emotions you have in the rest of your life, you work through your therapist. And so, and your therapist becomes the stand-in. And sometimes there's counter-transference where they work through their emotions with you. It's this whole thing. Um, we don't have time to go into all that. But there were many times when I left therapy in tears, when I left sessions in tears, where I was very upset. There were times when I wanted to cry, but I couldn't because I was so confused. I couldn't even name the emotions that I was actually feeling. Um, it was very frustrating and very difficult, but I kept the faith in it because I thought, I kept thinking, well, this can't hurt and it might help and I'm not getting any better on my own, so I'm just going to stick with it and see where this leads. 
And he wasn't, my therapist never did anything really extreme. I've heard of some, you know, extreme forms of therapy, like in group therapy sessions and things. I, there was nothing like that. It was nothing very extreme. I was mostly just frustrated with my own progress. And it was, um, you know, it was challenging. But I will say that I am a completely different person now than I was when I started. That I am so much happier, that I am grounded, that I am so much healthier, and I am just differently equipped to approach life now. And when I look back on my behavior and my feelings and things like that from the way I was before I started therapy, the change and the difference is astonishing. I mean, I almost can't believe it. And how, on top of, you know, your personal transformation, how have your relationships transformed? What does your support network look, look like now that you didn't have at the beginning? My support network is different in that I've just had changes in my life. I'm now divorced. I got divorced um, in 2016, the same year that my mother passed away. Um, I don't recommend doing those two things in the same year, but I did. And so um, that's just how life worked out. So, um, so I no longer, I'm no longer married and I am now closer to some of my extended family members like my aunt and my cousins because when I got divorced and my mom passed away, I was living in suburban Chicago and practicing law up there. And so I realized I was becoming a single mom. And so we moved back to Dallas um, so that I could take care of my mom who was sick. And so, um, so she was wonderful, but wasn't, I was really part of her support network, not the reverse because she was dying of a long-term illness. And so, um, you know, my aunt and cousins live here in Dallas. And so they have definitely, they rallied around me and definitely are a big part of my support network for me and my son. And I really, through my divorce and through my mom's passing, I really got a lot better at vulnerability and got a lot better at leaning on my friends and going to them for support and encouragement and for love. And that's a great thing. I mean, again, as an Enneagram three, that's not always my love language, right? Like I'm not the type who is normally going to be vulnerable with people or ask people for help because that's not really how I'm wired. And that's not really what I want to do, but I have found that it helps me significantly to do that. And it also strengthens my relationships because my relationships are more of a two-way partnership rather than me just helping everybody else. When my friends help me, they're more invested in me too. And I get to see all of the amazing ways that they're great at that. And they think of things and do things that would never even dawn on me to do. So it's really wonderful. And we feel a lot closer to each other because of that. And so I'm obviously not thrilled that I've had to go through all of this extreme suffering and all these difficulties, but I've really seen a lot of good that has come out of that. Well, and you're going through this huge transition right now of from attorney to pastor. Um, and how has spirituality 
intersected in this whole journey to vulnerability? Because one of the things that you talked about is vulnerability is the key to um, recovery, is the key to connection and relationship. Um, how, how did spirituality play in that? Spirituality plays a very interesting role for me. Um, you know, I think that years ago, what I used to, what I used to think about in terms of spirituality was that I think that I wanted to use spirituality kind of in the same way that Fräulein Maria did in The Sound of Music, where if you have seen that movie, and I've seen it so many times that I can sing all the words and um, know the storyline, and um, it's great. But she, you know, runs off to the convent because her life is overwhelming to her because she's falling in love with the sea captain because, I mean, who amongst us hasn't done that, right? You know, I mean, this tale is old as time. We've all <laughs> fallen in love with the sea captain and um, who, of course, is engaged to the baroness. And so um, that's never going to happen. And so, you know, while she's taking care of his children, um, she falls in love with him, but she's a nun. And so, you know, that's unfortunate. That's probably not going to work out. And so she becomes overwhelmed by her circumstances and doesn't know how to fix them. So she runs off to the convent saying, okay, well, I think I'll just move in here, you know, and literally physically run away from my problems. And then of course, you know, there's this big pivotal scene where the nun sings to her and says, no, no, you're not going to stay here. Um, you, you don't so you're Maria. <laughs> yes. And so that was it. And so for the spirituality, I think that I looked growing up, I looked at spirituality and the church as in part of my way of running away from my overwhelming feelings from the rest of the world that when work or school or friendships or whatever it is were too much for me, or I didn't know how to fix them or what have you, I could throw myself into prayer or reading scripture or going to mass because I grew up Catholic. Um, or, you know, things of that nature, where in a way, if I could spiritualize away my problems, then spirituality was a way of fixing them because I didn't have to pay attention to them anymore because I could run away from them and I could just yeah. pray and say, well, I'm getting closer to God, so that's better. So the problem, of course, is that that's not actually better because that doesn't really make me that much closer to God. I'm not really listening to God. I'm listening to me and trying to figure out what's going on with my own problems. And almost using it as a distraction more than a, a way to uh, get help. <laughs> right. So I wasn't getting the emotional help that I needed and was not getting any closer to God. So um, that really wasn't working on either front, but it seemed like an easy way to do that. And it is, as a pastor now, um, I am very attuned to those sorts of issues that I do become concerned because I'm certainly not the only person who's done that. And I think that lots of people conflate spiritual issues with mental health issues and think, well, I'm having these problems in my life, so I'll go to God. Theologically, yes, I agree with that. Spiritually, yes, I fully agree with that. Yes, we should bring our problems to God. But that's not the end, you know? I mean, we need to bring our problems to God, and we need to work through our problems, and those are two separate issues. So, as, as I told my therapist when I told my therapist the other day that I was going to be doing this podcast, 
I told him that the easiest way I can think of to put it is that as a Christian, I think everyone needs God and some people need God and Lexapro. And those are two different things, right? And they're two different issues. Um, there can be some dovetailing among them, and I do pray that God gives me strength and resources and help and guidance, but I don't just rely on that and try to spiritualize away my very obvious problems. Instead, I face my problems and work through them with the tools and resources I have and use spiritual practices such as prayer and reading scripture and contemplative prayer like meditation and things like that. And I use those as a way to ground myself with God. And I see those sort of in two different ways. So how do you think, uh, you know, working through this and seeing, hey, I used to treat spirituality as a distraction and now I feel like I'm, I'm walking hand in hand with God through this and I'm um, not running away. How is that going to help you be a better pastor by having experienced all of this? I think that that will help because as I said, I'm not, I, I really don't think I'm the only person who's ever done that. And it also helps that when I'm looking for a pastor, I don't want someone who has zero real world experience. I don't want Fräulein Maria who has been locked up in the Abbey, you know, with the nun and the sea captain, never speaking to anyone and never having to face real world problems because that's not terribly helpful, you know, and it's not realistic that as a pastor, I'm going to pastor real people who have real challenges and real difficulties and I've been I haven't been through all of them obviously but I've been through a number of them on my own and finding a way through that and finding a way to faithfully walk with God um, but not running away from all of my problems and you know doing those things at the same time I think is helpful because that's what we all need to do I mean as I think it's Ram Dass who said we're all just walking each other home in the end and if that's true and I think that it largely is, you know, and we're walking through this Wesleyan justification and sanctification and we're all, you know, becoming closer to God. I can better do that as a pastor by sharing my own experiences and by helping people with their own challenges, whether those be spiritual or, you know, recognizing where they might not be spiritual and whether they, you know, might be challenges in other areas. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for taking the time out, not just for this podcast episode, but also for the virtual roundtable and, and all of the preparation that you did to be able to guide us in this conversation about mental health and mental wellness. And um, I so appreciate you. So thank you so much for being a part of this with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. I have loved this. This is really this has been absolutely wonderful. And if you do another Enneagram podcast, let me know. I've got some things to say about that too. Ooh, okay. You're on my list now. <laughs> Thanks for listening to today's podcast episode. For even more resources on mental health, you can visit tmumc.org wellness.